So there's a lot of pressure on this morning. <laughs> right? There's pressure from outside the system. People looking at us, those of us who have faith, those of us who maybe believe the story, thinking, how could you? Such a fantastical story. I thought in this modern age of science and intelligence that we dispensed with such fantastical things, kind of magical thinking. So the pressure from outside can be to dispense with the story altogether or to cause it to become perhaps symbolic, a deep metaphor for death coming from life, hope from despair, joy from sorrow. But then there's also pressure from within, right? For those of us who believe in the story, it becomes the center of all meaning, the organizing principle for life, that from which everything else makes sense. And so that's a lot of pressure to pack into 20 minutes on a Sunday morning, <clears throat> something that most of us don't really understand at all yet. Even in our own little conversations in this church two weeks ago, we, we had widely varying opinions about what this specific event means. Uh, the first people to encounter Jesus when he came back, according to the story, in bodily form and appeared to them, they said, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Like, is that what this means? You won, you're back alive, you apparently can't die. That's good news for us. And so, does it mean we get to win now? And the story we'll look at today, the writer, the writer leans cosmic. So, one of the closest associates of Jesus, John, has a cosmic sense. He uses this word a lot, cosmic, a cosmic sense of the kind of problem that God was trying to solve through Jesus. It's more than just a few bad actors. There's something fundamentally flawed with the whole thing. Jesus is cosmic in identity. And the way that Jesus solved whatever was the problem was cosmic in scope. Right, so a daunting task. How do we understand what it meant and for whom and in what way? So I find helpful, truthfully, this is kind of what we talk about the rest of the year. All the time, we are trying to make meaning of the life that Jesus lived, the kind of life, the way that he died, what it meant that he apparently came back to life. Right, we talk about that a lot. <clears throat> What's helpful to me is to flip the perspective at least one Sunday a year. And instead of looking at it from my point of view, to look at it from his. Right? I start making meaning about almost everything in terms of what it means for me. What do I get out of it? What is it going to cost me? What do I have to do? And if I expand out from that, I go out to the rest of humanity, but with the same questions. What does it mean for us? What do we get from it? What do we have to do? What does it cost us? But it's a different question to ask, what does it mean to him? What did it mean to Jesus to have come back to life, to have gone through this experience, to have emerged on the other side? How did he think? How did he feel? What did he do? 
And what does that tell us about what being in the room with us this morning means for him? So the story on the other side begins like this. Um, This is the first story we're going to look at. We're going to go through three in short order. Don't worry. But it begins like this. So this is from uh, the account of the life of Jesus as told by his close friend, John. It says, Now early on the first day of the Sabbath week, while it is still dark, Mary the Magdalene comes to the tomb and sees that the stone has been removed from the tomb. She runs away and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, him who Jesus loved, (laughs) the storyteller, and says to them, they took the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they put him. So this triggers, again, according to the story, a foot race, one of the most notable foot races in history, where the storyteller John lets us know that he's racing with Peter to the tomb and John gets there first, right? So he wins the race. They get to the tomb and look inside and what they see are the cloths that had wrapped Jesus' body lying in a particular way on the ground. And it says, so the other disciple, meaning Peter, the one, the one having come to the first to the tomb, also entered and he saw and had faith. So the disciples went away home again, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. So we have this story, right? And one of the things that the writer lets us know is that Peter and John come to the tomb, they look inside, and they see something that causes them to have a perception, an awareness of the meaningfulness. Something has happened that they understand that Mary doesn't yet. We don't know why she doesn't understand what they have come to understand, but she is standing outside the tomb weeping. So she turned back around and sees Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus says to her, Madam, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? She, thinking that he is the gardener, says to him, My Lord, if you have carried him off, tell me where you put him and I will take him away. Jesus says to her, Mary. Turning, She says to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. So this is the opening story, this moment of loveliness. Here is Mary outside the tomb weeping, desperate, searching for the body of Jesus. For her at this moment, the dead body of Jesus is still a better organizing principle for her life than anything that's alive. It's what she wants. It's what she seeks. She's confused. She's lost. And in her confusion, Jesus comes to her, right? This is the first thing that he does, having come back to life. Seeks out a friend who is in distress because of his absence, because she doesn't understand what's going on. And he says to her, her name. And in saying that, it produces this moment of connection. Story number two. It's a little while later. 
Jesus, we learn, appears to his friends, the disciples, who are gathered in a locked room. Even though Jesus has come back to life, nobody else knows that. It doesn't have a lot of bigger relevance yet, so they're still living in a state of threat. Jesus, though he is embodied, apparently can do pretty cool things in his body, right? We already know that his body works differently than others. He can, like, walk on water. But here he can pass through a locked door and appear in the room. And so this is an exciting event. He says some things, right? He produces a little bit of content. (laughs) He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So there's a hint of content there, but truthfully, I think we'd all be challenged to understand exactly what that means. Like, what is it that Jesus is saying? What are those instructions? What are the principles there? And I think to be fair to the writer, my guess is Jesus might have said more things, but I think they're paying attention to how he interacts with them. Because it happens, so Jesus is with them, and they're very excited, but one of them, my namesake, is not in the room. Thomas has been sent out, like, I don't know what, to go pick up the pizza. And so by the time he gets back, Jesus has gone. It says Thomas, which meant twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, this thing that earns him his true name forever after, he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my hand into his side, I will most certainly not have faith. And so he's known forever after, right, as Doubting Thomas. He's got the Missouri show-me attitude, crosses his arms, ah, I need proof. And this becomes how we think of him. But what we forget is that leading into this week, when they all understood the threat that Jesus was going to be facing by coming to Jerusalem, it was Thomas. Jesus heads on ahead of the others. And it's Thomas who says, let us go up also that we may die with him. Right? I think Thomas loves Jesus. Thomas has pinned his hopes for the future on the possibility of Jesus. And so my read, which is probably just completely self-serving, <laughs> is that Thomas is not saying, I need proof. He's saying, I, I can't do that again. I can't hope in that way again. I can't commit to this possibility again unless I know it beyond knowing that what you're saying is real. And so then Jesus Oh my goodness, he is amazing. It says, eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. (laughs) The doors being sealed, Jesus come and stood in their midst and said, peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, bring your finger here and look at my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and cease to be faithless, but be faithful instead. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. So Jesus, just unflinchingly, right? Here is the one in the group who is confused, who's lost, who's faithless, who can't believe. 
And Jesus just turns to him. And in this profoundly personal way, the agenda of Jesus in this moment is to restore connection, is to be reunited to this friend of his who loves him and who he loves. And Thomas gets this experience of intimacy with Jesus that the rest of them all just watch. Touch my hand. Touch my side. Story number three. <laughs> there is nothing more iconic of leave me alone than I'm going fishing. Right? <clears throat> if we want to communicate, don't bother me, we put the sign up, gone fishing. And so that's literally what happens in this story. It's still in this strange time when Jesus has come back to life in bodily form. He appears for a little bit and then he disappears and nobody quite knows when he's going to show up. And he says these kind of cryptic things. Right? I'm sure they're all waiting for the instructions, for the meaning-making. Unpack what this all means for us, Jesus. Tell us what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to think, feel, and behave. When do we take over? But Jesus just shows up and says, Oh, you're distant from me here. This will help reconnect you. And then he goes away. And so there comes a time, I think, when his friends and followers are just confused and frustrated and uh, not understanding what's going on. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. And seven of the others come with him, right? So a little fishing expedition. It is a clear reversion to the pre-Jesus time. Jesus found them when they were fishing, and they were hapless fishermen. Jesus found them on the other side of a night of futility in fishing. And he said to them on that night long ago, cast your nets uh, out into the deep waters, and they did, and they're filled with fish, and they're like, oh, that's amazing, and poosh, off they go, following Jesus. <laughs> so now, when Peter says, I'm going fishing, it feels both like, I don't know what else to do. I'm going back to what life was like before Jesus came along. I kind of wonder if it's also maybe a little hopeful provocation. Well, he came once when we didn't catch any fish. We're really good at not catching fish. Let's try that again. Because <clears throat> that's exactly what happens. They go fishing. They fish the whole night. Don't catch a thing. When the sun starts coming up, there's a man on the shore. He calls out to them, little children, <laughs> little children, have you caught any fish? No. Try casting your nets on the right side of the boat, right? In the first instance, it was deep water. Now it's the right side of the boat. Put the nets in, filled with fish. <laughs> John turns to Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter, in this moment of Peterness, <laughs> he puts his cloak on and then jumps into the water, right? <laughs> Gets it kind of backwards. But he jumps into the water, swims to shore. The others row the boat. They don't want to lose the fish. And they come upon Jesus. When, therefore, they had disembarked onto the land, they see a charcoal fire laid out and a fish lying on it, as well as a loaf of bread. Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged along the net, 
full of a great many fish, 153. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus says to them, come, break your fast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing it is the Lord. Jesus comes and takes the bread and gives it to them, and likewise the fish. So I've had moments across the course of my life where I have felt God come to me in a way where I feel like God is communicating that God knows me. I've described some of them to those of you who've been with us for any length of time. A time in college where I was reading a section of the Bible and it came to life in a powerful way and I found myself wandering on the beach on my college campus under the stars, feeling God communicating to me. I've had prayer times where I feel God saying something to me, communicating to me. I've been at meetings and conferences, places that I went to with faith friends, where we were hearing messages. But what I remember, the way these events work, it's kind of like the reverse of trauma. You know, if you experience trauma, the badness gets emblazoned in your brain and your memory in a way you can't escape from and all the details around it. Well, this is like the same thing in reverse. I remember all the details, the places I was at, the time of day, the people who were gathered. And I kind of remember the content. I kind of remember what God might have been trying to communicate to me, what I was reading in the Bible at the time. But mostly what I remember is God being attuned to me. It's like, oh God, you know me. You know how I'm struggling right now. You know my confusion. You know my frustration. You know my searching. And you're communicating that in, to me in a way that lets you know that you know me. You know what's important to me. You know how I work. You, you, you appreciate my particularity, like this specific embodied person. And so when I come to these stories, that's what I see going on. The details are so rich and alive and lovely. <laughs> and there's like acknowledgement of meaningfulness. And Jesus said some things, you know. And there'll be plenty of time to unpack the meaningfulness. It's not that we don't do that or think about that. We do that all the time. That is what this faith community is about, is unpacking the meaningfulness of the kind of life that Jesus lived, how he died, what it means that he is alive to us again. But what I see in these stories is the attunement of Jesus to his friends, to each one of them. Mary, touch my side, have some breakfast. It was a hard night of fishing, wasn't it? You know, and here's, and they remember a charcoal fire, right? And a fish on it, and a loaf of bread that Jesus provided for them. And so I think about that for us this morning. I, I wish I could say to you that when you go home today, that Jesus will be there having laid out your Easter spread for you, right? As a way of showing his attunement to you and your specific stress this morning. But this is what we do all the time. We try to create spaces here where this kind of encounter with Jesus can happen. 
where he can manifest his attunement to us. I love it. Like, I can't even have this story be about you have to come to church to have this kind of experience because these guys went fishing and Jesus found them there. I think what unites them is the hope, the possibility that the living Jesus might be present and might offer goodness, might be a source of hope and possibility in the world around us, right? That's what... They're confused. It's almost like confusion or frustration is a magnet that attracts him, that says, okay, I need to pay attention to that one right now. So that, I think, is the offer for us on Easter, to understand what this meant for Jesus, how he knows you, how he knows each of us, how he comes to us. This is how the writer brings Mary's story to a close. It says, Mary the Magdalene comes to the disciples announcing, I have seen the Lord, as well as the things he told her. Right? What was meaningful to her was, I have seen the Lord. 